You're tuned to KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and in Fort Bragg at KD 88.1 FM. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We stream live on the web at kzyx.org, and we're also found on Facebook. Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me via Zoom is Dr. Robert Spies, a co-host for this program. And we are recording this uh, about a week ahead of broadcast date. Uh, and so we will try to add some information at the end if a situation gets updated because we have a very topical show for you tonight, something uh, that has actually been in the news recently if you are uh, paying attention to the conservation news. Uh, Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest and tell us what our topic is? Yes, uh, we're very fortunate to have an old friend and colleague of mine, John Shane, He's a wildlife biologist. Uh, he lives in Anchorage currently. He's worked for 20 year, over 20 years with the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, and then 14 years uh, with, uh, as a senior scientist with Audubon, Alaska. And uh, he spent a good deal of his career looking at the Tongass Forest. Uh, this is a really big rainforest along the northern coast of our, our continent extending up into Alaska from Canada. And um, it's very topical because of uh, moves that are being made, once again, to do some logging. So uh, I'll let John uh, introduce himself. Uh, John, we usually start our program uh, by asking our guests uh, uh, how they got into the business and uh, of, of they're interested in and uh, how they got going young in life and where they are right now. So um, I know you've got a really interesting biography, so maybe you could uh, fill our uh, readers, in, uh, our listeners in a little bit on uh, your background. Sure. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Tim. It's great to be with you tonight. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, I grew up in the San Juan Islands of Washington State, uh, a rural island off the coast of Washington. And um, I had a, a, a beach in my front yard and uh, 100 acres of forest and meadows in my backyard. So I was uh, a bit of a, a wild youth roaming around the woods and went to school and uh, had a lot more fun uh, out in the backyard than I did going to school. But uh, went on to Whitman College uh, over in Eastern Washington, Walla Walla and uh, thought I'd be an economics major, but uh, my freshman year I got a D in economics. Biology was my best subject, so I became a biology major and uh, got involved in marine biology, Bob, you know, like, like you, you have been, but, uh, but I went a path of wildlife biology. I went on to UPS, uh, University of Puget Sound, got a master's. I studied the, the bio, island biogeography of mammals in the San Juan Islands, and then went to the University of Washington where I worked on elk up in the Washington Cascades. And uh, following that for my PhD, I, um, my wife and I jumped on the Alaska Ferry and uh, went up to Alaska where I started work for Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And yeah, now I'm retired. <laughs> I'm still working on some of these things. And you, you actually lived uh, uh, in the Tongass Forest uh, earlier in your career, right? Uh, that's right. We we uh, originally moved 
1976 to Anchorage. And uh, after nine months of uh, working at a, a temporary job, I applied for and received the, the first research biologist's job uh, down in the Tongass with the state of Alaska. And my job was to start out studying black-tailed deer and, uh, and mountain goats and their relationship to old growth forest. And uh, so I, I, did, I started that in the spring of 77. And uh, we lived in Juneau. We lived off the grid. We built a house out on the Mendenhall Peninsula about half a mile from the road. So we had to take a skiff back and forth to the house. We didn't have electricity or phone. Uh, and it was amazing. It was living in real Alaska. <laughs> so the, tonight's subject is the Tongass Forest and its uh, use and abuse and conservation. Uh, perhaps you could orient our listeners a little bit to the Tongass Forest, uh, uh, you know, what's its boundaries? What's the landscape like? What are some of the habitats? Sure. And I'll step back and take a big picture view. Uh, the Tongass is part of the North Pacific Temperate Rainforest. And they're, uh, compared to tropical uh, rainforests, temperate rainforests are relatively rare across the globe. Um, they occur the North Pacific temperate rainforest from Northern California in your area, from the Redwoods all the way up through Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, uh, into Alaska, all the way up to the Kenai Peninsula and out to a Fognac Island in the Kodiak Archipelago. That's a very, you know, Northwestern edge. Um, so that's the biggest temperate rainforest in the world. There are temperate rainforests in the Southwest coast of Chile. Um, uh, Norway, uh, New Zealand, uh, Japan. And so those are some of the, the, the temperate rainforests that occur. And um, uh, they're, uh, the, the North Pacific temperate rainforest going up the coast, uh, a key element here is that the Southern uh, region from California all the way up through Oregon and Washington into BC up to Vancouver Island is mostly been logged. And now they're just really relic fragments of old growth forest, you know, and you, you're living that in California, you've got redwood, uh, redwood forest, but there's relatively small patches compared to what was, what, what once was. Uh, so actually the, the greatest extent of intact old growth temperate rainforest occurs from northern British Columbia, the Great Bear Rainforest, up through the Tongass. And one of the interesting things about uh, this forest, um, you know, the redwoods have huge trees, and then Washington used to have huge Douglas fir trees and red cedar trees that were over 20 feet in diameter. The farther north you go, the more fragmented and uh, lower productivity the forest is. You know, it's just it, the farther north it is, the forest becomes more fragmented and the trees become much smaller. So what we have up north is really not any, anything like what you have or had in Northern California. Right, and um, so the, the Tong, the, the, what's designated uh, these days as the Tongass is, uh, is it a, is it in British British Columbia or is it mainly limited to 
Alaska in uh, common parlance. Yeah, the, the Tongass National Forest is the largest national forest in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, it's about the size of West Virginia, almost 17 million acres. Starts at the Canadian border, just north of Prince Rupert, and goes all the way up uh, to Yakutat Bay, and just a little bit north. Yeah. Um, it's uh, uh, an amazing forest. The Chugach Forest, which is up in Prince William Sound, uh, north and west of the Tongass, is you know about the second largest forest. It's about five million acres. Uh, but the Chugach, which has old growth, it, our trees are mostly uh, red cedar, Alaska cedar, uh, western hemlock, and Sitka spruce. And uh, the farther north you go, the smaller the trees are. So we have, I, I would say that the Tongass and northern BC coast have the greatest extent of intact temperate rainforest left on earth. Um, and the Tongass uh, represents about 30% of the world's uh, old growth temperate rainforest. So it's a significant amount of forest on the Tongass. Right, right. And what's that forest mainly composed of? The well, uh, the, the primary tree species are uh, western red cedar, Alaska cedar, also called yellow cedar, uh, western hemlock, and Sitka spruce. Uh, the big money, and then there's some shore pine and some other incidental trees. But uh, the, the big money trees are Sitka spruce and, and now cedars. And cedars are becoming uh, pretty rare. A, a key factor of the Tongass, and I mentioned earlier that the farther north you go, the more fragmented and the lower quality forest you, you deal with. Um, but people would be amazed. They think of the Tongass National Forest, our largest, uh, as being covered with forest, but actually only about half of the land base of the Tongass actually has forest. And only about a third of the Tongass has what's, what would be classified as commercial forest. So the Tongass is a patchwork quilt of glaciers and alpine and rock and uh, muskeg bogs. We have a lot of wet, boggy area. And on the edge of the muskeg bogs, this is poorly drained uh, soils. You have your shore pine and you have stunted trees. And it's on the better drained kind of upslope forest and the floodplain forests that are well drained that you get the big trees. On the Tongass, we once had trees that got up to be about 12 feet in diameter. Most of those trees are gone today. Um, I've actually found two trees that are probably in the top 10 of the largest trees left in Alaska that were about nine to nine and a half feet in diameter and about 200 feet tall. Amazing trees. But um, we actually in, we've actually had logging for many years. And the hand loggers uh, in the early years were cutting individual trees. Uh, Sitka spruce, dropping them and leveraging them down to the to the water where they could then tow them somewhere. Um, and when the forest was harvested that way, it really didn't change the structure of the, the forest. Um, but then with the advent of two 50-year contracts in, in the early 50s, 
we began industrial scale clear cutting. And that's when uh, the industry and the Forest Service were logging whole valleys. And Prince of Wales Island, which is in the southern part of the Tongass near Ketchikan, that's the largest island in Southeast Alaska. That once had the best timber in all of Alaska. Uh, that area has been heavily logged. Uh, but uh, I think a key element that this is a key point for anyone that wants to understand the Tongass and logging and its relationship to fish and wildlife is that for the last 70 years, industrial logging has targeted the very best timber, not unlike Northern California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia. The good stuff always goes first. That's where the big money is. And that's the same thing that happened in Alaska. The problem is that those forests were always rare on the Tongass in scattered areas and the industry went there first. So we've estimated and done some measurement and about half of the big tree forests, the large trees uh, have been cut. And when you look at the, the really, you know, the giant trees that the nine, 10, 12 footers, th those are just relics. They're, you just find those in scattered areas once in a while. So logging's had a big impact and some of that large tree forest plays a very important role as habitat for salmon along the riparian stream sides, for brown bears, for black-tailed deer, uh, nesting habitat for marbled murrelets, and a number of other species. So it isn't necessarily how many acres you cut, but it's also what kind of acres you cut that's important for wildlife and fish. And uh, there's, I think there's quite a story to, to, to tell, and you've captured it in your book, The Tongass Odyssey, about the relationship. Uh, you know, somebody that was relatively naive about wildlife and forests would say, well, you know, the trees grow back, you get secondary growth, and, uh, you know, what's the problem? We took, we took some big trees out, but uh, what, what do you, how do you answer those people? Because well, that's a great question. Um, to understand the issue of logging and its impact on fish and wildlife, first you have to understand the lay of the land, which I just described. The big trees were always rare. The commercial uh, forest was about a third of the land base. And, and those areas are very valuable fish and wildlife habitat. Trees grow back. You know, we have, part of being in a rainforest, we have continual moisture, so we don't have to replant because we have natural regeneration. That's also a problem because old growth forests, and this is a key issue, old growth forests are what we would call steady state forests. The death of old trees in a natural forest stand is balanced by the growth of new trees. And in an old growth forest, it's uneven age. So you have seedlings and saplings, and then you have these great big trees, if it's in a good productive site, well-drained soils, uh, that may be, you know, nine and 10 feet in diameter. Those are very rare today. Um, and, and the ages, you know, range from, you know, seedlings all the way up to forests and trees that are 800 to 1,000 years old. So, in a second growth forest, you have trees, but logging, clear-cut logging 
is like fire in the sense that all the trees are taken out and they start at the same time. So they grow up together and, you know, a, a 25 year forest in Southeast Alaska after clear cutting, fire is very rare in the rainforest. So it's really a clear cutting issue. So the, the trees that are growing up at about 25 to 30 years, they're very densely packed, almost hard to walk through. They're all the, same, all the same age, right? They're all the same age and roughly the same size. And the canopy, the overhead limbs, just kind of tie together and it blocks out the sunlight. So this stand of trees from about 25 years, you know, after it gets out of the clear cut stage till 100 years, till 200 years. And, you know, sometimes it takes, it takes centuries to develop the ecological structure of old growth. So as you get into the second growth forest, that's, um, let's say it's 100 years old, it's a very sterile habitat for wildlife. The, the, the even age and the closed canopy prevents sunlight from penetrating the forest into the forest floor. So there's virtually no green vegetation. You have a little bit of ferns coming in later on, but all of the herbaceous uh, forbs and shrubs uh, really don't occur in those in those kinds of forests, and that provides diversity and hab habitat structure and food for herbivores. And it's so important to wildlife, and those old growth forests are important to fish too. So do you, do you see the wildlife then concentrated in the uh, tends to concentrate in the old growth forests and avoid the sec uh, the second growth? Uh, absolutely, some wildlife. And I started deer work in uh, 1977. And our first objective was to measure deer use in clear cuts and second growth and compare that use to adjacent old growth forest. And what we found was that the deer use was about seven times higher uh, throughout the year in the adjacent old growth forest than it was in the clear cuts or the second growth. And second growth is simple. Once you've walked through a second growth forest, you know, in the lower 48, you hear them talk about dog hair stands. You know, you walk through these dense forests with nothing on the forest floor. There's not a, if a deer goes in there, they have to pack a lunch. There's just nothing to eat. Uh, clear cuts provide some food during snow-free periods, uh, but when snow comes and there's no overhead canopy, um, the, the clear cuts start to quickly fill up with snow and at about six inches, the most important winter food for deer, uh, five leaf bramble and bunchberry and gold thread, these, these uh, evergreen forbs uh, are covered in snow and then deer really struggle. And the deeper the snow, the more it costs energetically for deer to move through. If you've ever walked through two feet of snow, post holing, you know how much energy it takes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No fun. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so, has uh, this had an effect on the population of black-tailed deer? Uh, absolutely. You don't see deer populations in heavily cut-over valleys, like on Prince of Wales, where in the early days, in the 50s, they cut the entire valley from ridgetop to ridgetop right across the salmon stream. It had a tremendous impact. So these are like forest plantations. 
So and this is this is before they had uh, some of the buffer zones around the streams. Exactly. Yeah. A absolutely. Yeah. So uh, by the '70s, when I started work, the Forest Service was laying out timber sales in a patchwork uh, setting where the largest clear cut wasn't supposed to be more than 100 acres. Still pretty big, but the key issue. In the early days, they went to the best watersheds and they cut the best watersheds first in terms yeah. of timber quality. Right. And by the 70s, and even today, they go into a watershed and they pick out the best forest stands and they cut those. And I would describe uh, the best deer habitat and winter is limiting. So in an area where you have uh, alpine and subalpine and and deer deer habitat conditions in the summertime really aren't limiting but in the wintertime when the snow comes at higher elevations the deer are forced down to low elevations southern exposure which has less snow uh, and they go into the, the the deeper the snow they go into the big tree forest the stands with big hemlock and spruce stands because they intercept more snow and there's more food available for deer and those are the places that the industry went first. And those are the places that the industry continues to go. The amount of logging today is, you know, 20% of what it was in the heyday of the 80s and early 90s, uh, maybe 15%. But remember, I said, it's not just the, the number of acres, it's the kind of acres. Right. So, yeah. If you've just tuned in uh, to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, our guest this evening is Dr. John Shane, uh, talking to us from Anchorage, Alaska. Dr. Shane has uh, spent a great deal of his career studying the uh, Pacific Northwest Rainforest, particularly the, the Tongass National Forest that is in coastal southeast Alaska and is an uh, absolutely huge, uh, magnificent ecosystem. So some of those 50-year timber contracts are uh, still in, in force? No. Um, and this is really interesting. And because this was right during our, our deer research and as we're getting into bear research, uh, Congress passed the Tongass Timber Reform Act in 1990. And it substantially changed. Before that time, uh, there was a, basically a target of cutting 450 million board feet a year. And then Congress provided uh, off-budget money to the Forest Service to subsidize road building. So it was really a sweetheart deal for two big pulp mills in Ketchikan and Sitka. But after 1990, then that situation changed. But in that act, uh, there was a prohibition against high grading, against cutting the best timber out of proportion to what had occurred on the forest itself. And part of that came from the wildlife and fish work that we had been doing. Right. Um, what happened, though, is that when the, the big 50-year uh, contracts either expired or they, the industry gave up on them because they weren't keeping up with their, their water quality and air quality and so on, uh, and the, the timber economics were getting not so good, uh, so the big contracts left, and the prohibition against high grading the best timber uh, went with contracts. So now the Forest Service and the industry is still high grading. It's at a much smaller 
scale of timber harvest, but is still going after the best timber. There, there are buffer strips now for fisheries, but being a marine biologist yourself and knowing a lot about fish, uh, the fish ecologists say that if you want to maintain the most productive habitat, spawning habitat, and rearing habitat, the best thing to do is to pr protect the whole watershed because the big timber along the, uh, the riparian buffers along the stream side, uh, they buffer the, the streams for temperature in the winter, the water temperature is a little warmer, and in the summertime, the water temperature is cooler because of that, the shade of the overstory forest, and then you've got the forest debris coming down, which brings lots of insects and lots of food for the fish. So those forests are really important, not just to wildlife, but to aquatic organisms. Of course, the, the salmon populations uh, and the, and the, uh, the, the terrestrial habitat and, and terrestrial plant life are interconnected because the, the salmon are coming upstream with marine nitrogen and uh, they're dying and they're, they're, uh, their carcasses are rotting and that nitrogen gets taken up and used as a nutrients. And so they, these, these two things kind of work together. Absolutely right. Uh, you know, we call it salmon in the trees. I mean, there has, have been some studies where they've actually measured marine-derived nitrogen. You can distinguish that from terrestrial nitrogen, and you see it in hemlock and spruce needles. You see it in devil's club leaves. You see it in bear hair. Um, so the, the salmon, we have millions of salmon coming up, all five species, you know, pink and chump salmon are the most common, uh, and they spawn in small little streams, really important to bears. But we have millions of salmon coming in and spawning in thousands of, of streams and rivers and lakes in Southeast Alaska. So that, that uh, aquatic, terrestrial marine interface is really important. And some people consider the Tongass to be one of the, the Earth's important estuaries. If you look at this island archipelago of thousands of islands and uh, this old growth forest in the Gulf of Alaska is just very, very productive. And you have uh, bald eagles up there moving salmon and carrying them up to the tops of the ridges, right? So that marine oh, nitrogen oh, absolutely. is distributed I mean, over the whole point. landscape. Yeah, we, the highest density nesting bald eagles in the world occur in the Tongass. The uh -huh. Tongass has the highest density marbled murrelet nesting in the world. And we've got, you know, some of the highest density brown bear populations in the Northern Islands, Admiralty, Baranoff, and Chichikov. And that's where I did my brown bear work. And, and we were the first ones to actually uh, measure densities of bears on Admiralty Island. And we measured densities of one bear per square mile. Just phenomenal. Wow. Yeah. So, so salmon, um, I think of salmon as anchoring the productivity of South Coastal Alaska and, and the Tongass. And uh, you mentioned the, the eagles, also the ravens and crows and the jays. All of these species are feeding on salmon and then depositing salmon, you know, into the terrestrial environment. Well, bears, you know, a, a female brown bear may eat as much uh, as 2,000 pounds of salmon in a season. 
and the bears will fish right in the stream. And, you know, the, the big males, the dominant bears, they'll just eat their fish right there at the stream side. But a female, because, you know, the bears, you got to be careful about bears. Um, a female will go down and she'll grab a fish and she'll run off into the forest understory and take her cub with her. So the bears are moving this tremendous salmon resource throughout the forest, throughout the floodplain forest. And it's a very rich environment. And I'll just say one more thing about salmon. Um, researchers have documented over a hundred species of birds, mammals, and marine uh, fish and marine and terrestrial invertebrates that actually feed on salmon. So it's just uh, really an incredible ecosystem there. And so the bears are defecating too in the forest after they eat the salmon and, and uh, that, that's helping as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah, right. I, I think even down here, I mean, that's, you're kind of describing an ecosystem that used to function very similarly down here. Uh, and that gets back to your first point about the, this being, you know, we're in the same kind of temperate rainforest, even though we have, you know, it has significant differences in the composition, the tree species, but the way it cycles nutrients is very, very similar. Uh, that's what used to happen here with the salmon. Essentially, I've heard it called the, you know, the nutrient conveyor belt system for moving nutrients out of the ocean and up onto the mountains basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And that the system in the Pacific Northwest was very similar. Um, but today, I mean, you just think of the, the salmon runs that have gone extinct or where they are threatened or endangered in the Pacific Northwest in California. And, you know, I like to think of the Tongass, even though we've had some significant logging, we still have many watersheds that are intact with productive old growth forest. So in the Tongass, we've got th this intact ecosystem that still has all its parts. And that's not the same situation as the lower 48. Yeah. Or, or British Columbia. Yeah, you mentioned marble merlets, and, and of course they're a hot topic down here because uh, our population is uh, endangered and is likely to go extinct within a lifetime uh, in California because its its entire nesting habitat has been lost. And uh, as you put it earlier, the, it takes centuries to regrow that habitat, and uh, meanwhile the the birds don't have that same lifespan, so they're going to they're going to slowly dwindle uh, even if we stopped cutting entirely and started regrowing trees it takes too long to build a big tree and marble merlets are quite rare down here it's a great day when you can find one but up there where you are uh, they're one of the most abundant seabirds right oh they're yeah they occur throughout the tongass and up into prince william sound uh, it's, you know, they're amazing. And then we have the Kitlitz's murelet too. Um, and they're uh, a murelet that's fairly closely associated with tidewater glaciers. So they occur down in Glacier Bay and portions of the Tongass, but marbled murelets occur throughout the Tongass and, you know, in higher nesting densities than anywhere else on earth. Yeah. And that's those big trees that you mentioned. They, they just have to have them. And, and there's, 
I mean, that's where most of the world's population is, and the world population of marble merlets is, what, a few million birds, I think? Yeah, you know, you, you might have a better, I, I can't answer that question for sure, but uh, the, the epicenter is in southeast Alaska. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I've, I've read descriptions of just immense rafts of them, and you know, it's hard for us to even imagine that. If we find two in a, in, you know, in a, in a season, it's, it's great for us. Uh, so they're rare here, but they're incredibly abundant. But it's because you still have that habitat that we've almost entirely lost here. Can you just uh, update us then? It sounds like logging has been a feature in the Tongass for quite some time. Uh, what's changing now? Well, <clears throat> you know, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to frame this. Um, logging has been, you know, I think that, that the, I was saying that earlier in the, in the 70s and 80s, they were cutting about 450 million board feet a year. Um, and right now, they're cutting probably 30 million board feet a year. So it's much reduced. You need to keep in mind also that under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971, uh, they, this act created 13 regional corporations and a whole bunch more village corporations. And the native corporations were given land in Alaska, uh, millions of acres, and a cash settlement. And then they created for-profit corporations. In Southeast Alaska, the Sea Alaska Native Corporation had the right to select uh, lands for logging. So they selected some of the very best lands. And mostly those lands were logged uh, you know, not in the patchwork cut, but in the, you know, pretty much going and taking out the timber in a whole watershed. Uh, so today, uh, m you know, most of the corporation lands have nearly been logged and the Tongass has a much smaller harvest, but in the last Tongass land management plan amendment, there was a recommendation to substantially increase the harvest level. And then last month in October of this year, the uh, Secretary of Agriculture just adopted um, a, a final environmental impact statement that excludes the Tongass from the national roadless rule. And that is a huge issue that you've seen press on across the nation in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Seattle PI and, and I'm sure in California papers. So this comes back to my concern about, I think there would be 160,000 acres of new forest land available for logging and logging's done by the clear-cut method. Um, and that will target the harvest in those rare but highest value timber sites. Economically, it makes sense, but from a fish and wildlife standpoint, remember it's not just how many acres you're logging, it's the kind of acres. So they're gonna go and they're gonna pick the low hanging fruit. And that's gonna have an impact on salmon, is gonna have an impact on brown bears, it's gonna have an impact on black-tailed deer, marble murrelets, other forest birds, uh, the Queen Charlotte goshawk, you know, it's, it's our subspecies of the northern goshawk. 
uh, very affiliated with old growth forest. A lot of cavity nesting, nesting birds. The, the Franklin spruce grouse on Prince of Wales Island, it's a separate subspecies. Uh, that'll be impacted. Um, so, so there's, the, probably, there's probably a host of smaller mammals that haven't really been well studied that they could well be impacted as but we don't have a we don't, I, I imagine we don't have a baseline for those well that's that's uh, largely true what we do know is that the Tongass is uh, this island archipelago and I mean it's they call Haida Gwaii the Queen Charlotte Islands the Galapagos of Canada well you could call the Tongass the Galapagos of the United States because the endemism the number of species and subspecies of birds and mammals on the Tongass is really quite astounding. And you don't have this, the same distribution of birds and mammals across the Tongass. The, for example, the Admiralty Baranoff Chichikov Islands, where I did my brown bear research, um, have, has brown bears, but brown bears don't occur on the southern islands, where you have black bears and wolves, and in some cases, wolverines, and black bears and, and wolves don't occur on the northern islands. Uh, another species that will be impacted is the Prince of Wales flying squirrel. Uh, it's a, a subspecies of flying squirrel and they're subspecies of marten. So we don't yet have a complete understanding of the taxonomy of that area, but we do know that the natural fragmentation because of glaciers and inlets and islands is very substantial, and then you go in and do major clear cutting, and that further fragments the forest. So this is a, a real challenging issue to deal with. And the, the deal that was made between the governor of Alaska and the, Donald Trump, president of the United States, was to exclude the Tongass from the national roadless rule, and they've done that. And I might just say that I think there are 11 native tribes that live in Southeast that have, that'll probably sue, and they've challenged the Forest Service because they were supposed to be dealt with fairly, and they were left, they feel that they were left out of this situation. They are opposed to the roadless exemption. Um, I think that, you know, 80% of the people who live in Southeast Alaska were opposed to the roadless exemption. Of course, all the conservation groups were, and most of the scientists. Uh, that work in this area feel that the roadless exemption will result in significant conservation risk for the ecosystem and, and birds and mammal, mammals and, and fish. It must be interesting uh, working as a biologist for the state of Alaska or the Forest Service and the kinds of pressures one gets from uh, the, the politically appointed people in the agency and the and the governments, uh, both the, the state and the federal governments, and to, to try to speak truthfully about what you know about uh, these threats to wildlife, the same time these people are trying to push uh, an agenda which uh, is really opposed in many ways to the healthy sustenance of these populations. It, it's very challenging, Bob, and you've looked through my book a little bit, and you know, uh, I think the title of my book, Tongass Odyssey, you know, it's a personal experience of 40 years working in this area, uh, looking at the forest ecosystem through the politics of trees. 
So I worked on the Tongass as an agency biologist for 20 years, and then as a, as a conservation scientist for a conservation NGO, Audubon, Alaska, for 14 years. And I've, after my retirement, I've kept my oar in the water on this issue. But to give you one example, I was doing bear research uh, on Admiralty and Chichikov Islands, and the uh, Tongass Timber Reform Act was moving through Congress. And in 1986, um, I was asked by Congressman Cyberling if I would come back and, and provide his subcommittee with some information on wildlife old growth relationships on the Tongass because they were considering doing some major changes in Tongass management. And I said, certainly, and I talked to my supervisors and they thought that would be fine. Well, uh, the regional forester uh, from the Tongass and the governor uh, went to the commissioner of fish and game and said, no. Uh, and, and the commissioner said, well, uh, uh, John's unavailable uh, and we don't have enough money to send him back. Um, well, that wasn't true, of course. Uh, so I did uh, some serious personal deliberation with my wife, Mary Beth, and with my ADF and G, Alaska Fish and Game colleagues and supervisors, who were all very supportive. And to make a long story short, I took annual leave from the state of Alaska and I went back and testified. And um, um, I showed slides, I gave a slideshow. And I contrasted old growth and second growth and I, I talked mostly about deer. And that was received very positively from uh, Chairman Cyberling and the committee. Uh, and then the Chief of the Forest Service, Max Peterson, got up and then testified the next day. And basically his testimony was, we will always maintain a viable population of black-tailed deer on the Tongass, and we're only cutting um, uh, one half of 1% of the Tongass in any one year, and there will always be lots of old growth. <laughs> well, the day before I had explained high grading and how only a small part of the Tongass was productive habitat. So, yeah. you know, we just lost that in translation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you've just tuned in uh, to the call GR on KZYX, our guest this evening is Dr. John Shane, uh, talking to us from Anchorage, Alaska. The state has been a partner in this in a, in a way, right? Because the economy of uh, Alaska depends on things like uh, uh, oil drilling and uh, extraction of natural, and timber other natural resources. Yeah, yeah, timber harvest and, and fishing. Yes. Well, the fishing is an interesting question. Uh, to what extent is the fisheries involved in these decisions? Are I mean, do they see a threat to their economic livelihood uh, if the salmon fisheries are impaired? Yeah, the, the fishermen are quite concerned about that, Tim. Uh, absolutely. And during the Tongass timber reform hearings in Congress, uh, fishermen testified, scientists testified, wildlife biologists, conservationists, timber industry folks. Uh, so fishermen are very concerned. Fishermen are concerned about the, the roadless exemption. So they're speaking out about that. Um, so, so this is an issue. You, you mentioned Alaska is a resource extraction state. We're a very red state. Um, but the most recent economic studies, I think the most recent data come from 
2017, uh, and that has indicated that timber management represents less than 1% of the workforce in Southeast Alaska. The combination of the seafood industry and the tourism industry account for 25% of the mm. workforce of Southeast Alaska. Government and healthcare are really big, but, but the seafood industry and the tourism industry are very concerned. Their industries require a healthy, vibrant forest that maintains its ecological integrity. So those industries are pitted with the timber industry, which is at a very low level right now. Um, taxpayers for Common Sense recently did uh, a study. They're a conservative group, and they found that the Tongass Timber Program loses $30 million a year uh, managing timber sales. Now you add that you yeah. add that up over yeah. about twenty years, and we're looking at over half a billion dollars. Wow! And by loses, you mean that's that's actually coming as a in the form of subsidies? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they help they help subsidize road building. Uh, they help lay you know laying out a timber sale, uh, going through a, an EIS process that may take two or three years. You know, they've got road engineers that work for the Forest Service. They've got you know an environmental staff doing environmental impact statements, that all takes a lot of money. So, so I think it's fair to say that the timber industry is heavily subsidized. Um, it doesn't employ a lot of people anymore. It did at one time. Um, but it, it also has an impact on other resource uses. It impacts subsistence native harvest of fish and wildlife. That's why the 11 tribes are saying, no, we don't want the roadless rule exempted on the Tongass. Um, that's why the tourism industry and the, the fishermen are concerned. So it's, uh, you know, in terms of a cost benefit relationship, it isn't there. Now, speaking as an ecologist, um, I take the long view. I think, you know, to do responsible management of our public lands. We really need a time perspective of, of centuries. But most timber sales are a time perspective of five years. So, and they're influenced strongly by elections. And, and we're dealing with that, of course, right now. Uh, but my concern is that old growth forests are not renewable. On 100 year timber rotations, the standard rotation, uh, you know, once you cut it, it's gone. Peoples in uh, Southeast Alaska had made these selections of lands. Uh, I think it was in, uh, as I understand uh, the politics, uh, when the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was going through. That, in other words, uh, the natives supported the, the, the pipeline route and, and in exchange, they got to select all these wonderful things. I know during the Exxon Valdez restoration program, we spent about $300 million uh, buying back some of those great lands, particularly around Kodiak and Fognac Islands. Um, but then I wonder, you know, you've got native populations now opposed to the roadless uh, exemption. And at the same time, they, they've been selling 
cutting timber and selling it from their selected lands in the southeast as well. And well, that, 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 that's a great point, Bob. And it's a crucial uh, distinction are villages and tribes on the one hand and the, the corporations on the other. Right. So it would be like comparing uh, a small uh, town somewhere in rural America with some big oil and gas company that's leasing public lands. Uh, so so the, the villages and the tribes depend on the subsistence resources, fish and wildlife and, you know, berry picking and, and you know, using the natural resources. So they're not so anxious to see clear cutting, especially in their backyard. Yeah, I've always wondered about the, the wisdom of setting up those uh, for-profit corporations. Um, I'm not sure the long-term uh, story on those is going to be a positive one. So another, another important aspect uh, of the Tongass that is really hitting the forefront today is climate change. Um, you know, we've just, climate scientists have discovered that old growth forests, uh, whether they're tropical rainforest or temperate rainforest, are, are really the lungs of the planet. And uh, the Tongass is the most important forest for carbon sequestration and storage uh, in the United States. Of all the national forests, the Tongass is number one. Wow. Yeah. Is, is and, that because uh, of its sheer size or is it actually uh, growing? Uh, well, it, it's a combination. Recall that, you know, half the Tongass doesn't have forests. So, right. so you kind of bring it down a little bit. But we have, you know, old growth forests. If, if you had your redwoods, you know, still, other than the fragments that are left, then you guys would be competitors. Uh, maybe you'd, you'd beat us. But uh, the, of all the national forests in the U.S., the Tongass is number one. And I think that one of the climate scientists for the Forest Service uh, has estimated that there are 70 tons of carbon uh, in the terrestrial environment for every acre uh, on the Tongass. Certainly not on, on, in the ice fields and so on, but in the forest. So the Tongass, the Tongass stores a lot of carbon. And the Sealaska Native Corporation, as a matter of fact, right now is looking at the possibility of carbon credits. So they're actually, and I don't know too much about that, but they're actually looking into that, that keeping uh, trees on the stump might be a more effective use of uh, the resource than making them into two by fours. Mm -hmm. Just to remind our uh, listeners a little bit late in the program here, but we're listening to uh, Dr. John Shane from uh, Anchorage, Alaska, a wildlife biologist has worked um, a good portion of his career in the Tongass rainforest in southeast Alaska and he has a book out uh, it's uh, I've read parts of it it's very very interesting compelling book on his experience both personal and with this, the uh, wildlife biology that he's he's done uh, called Tongass Odyssey and uh, I would uh, encourage readers who are interested uh, uh, a little more detail on the subject to uh, pick up a copy of John's book. John, is your, is your book uh, 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 available yet or is it uh, still being produced? Yes, it, it's available. Uh, you can order it through the University of Alaska Press. They're the publisher. 
uh, University of Chicago Press also handles Tungus Odyssey uh, with the University of Alaska. Uh, it's also, it's available in paper uh, or it's available in Kindle uh, from Amazon. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll go uh, ahead and uh, I'll, I'll get some links for the, for that up on our website so that people can find that easily. And that website is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. We'll have some links there to uh, uh, Dr. Shane's research, I think, and, uh, and to the book as well. Do you have some, uh, if possible, it'd be great if we could have some resources people could follow up on to learn more about what's unique about the Tongass and why it's worth preserving. Well, I would go to the Audubon, Alaska homepage. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, a colleague uh, from the Nature Conservancy uh, worked with me collaboratively, and we put together uh, a conservation assessment of Southeast Alaska and the Tongass, and that was done in, I think, 2007. And then Audubon Alaska updated that with some climate change information, and they have an ecological atlas of Southeast Alaska and the Tongass. And that's right on the webpage that you could link to the ecological atlas or, or the conservation assessment, but they Wonderful. have similar information. Wonderful. Yeah, that much, an ecological assessment of a uh, ecosystem that large and that spread out must be an immense undertaking. Uh, it was, and my partner uh, is a master GIS uh, expert. So we were able to have many layers from deer habitat and brown bear habitat and fish salmon and address streams and, and different age stands of forest and the different quality of forest. It, it was a big undertaking, but a, a really a valuable tool for land man managers and for fish and wildlife biologists. Yeah, I can, I can well imagine now, if, if only the right people will pick those, that tool up, right? <laughs> How do you get that tool into the proper hands? Uh, well, science is important, and we all have an obligation to make sure that we underpin our resource management decisions with good science. Yes, absolutely. And I, um, I, I believe there is still time to get some public input into this change in the roadless rule, or is that a done deal? Um, you know, uh, you'd have to, I, think, I think it's kind of a done deal. Uh, I, I suspect the next step will be litigation. Uh, uh -huh. And I, I, I think a number of the, the tribal and conservation groups are considering that. But uh, I got my last comments in last week and I think it's, it was uh, coming right up near the end. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and we're doing this interview on the November 2nd. Uh, it will air on, I believe on the 9th, Bob? The 10th. 10th of November. And so I think by that time, if there is a public comment window, it will have slammed shut. Uh, we've noticed the, those windows are getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, they are. Well, we have just uh, maybe about three or four minutes left in the show. Uh, Dr. Shane, this has been a great discussion and a real uh, interesting to me because I knew very little about the Tongass before. And it's fascinating to hear how similar it actually is to our redwood forest in so many ways in terms of ecosystem function. Uh, do you have some uh, 
parting thoughts you'd like to have listeners take away from this discussion? Well, I, I grew up in Western Washington. And if you've ever driven I-5 uh, north of Everett, there's a rest area. And you can go in and there's a red cedar stump that's over 20 feet in diameter. And it now has a roof over it. And I remember going by that when I was a very young child with my parents. And we'd stop and it was really pretty cool. Trees like that used to occur in Western Washington. And now there are a few relics that occur in Olympic National Park. We have an opportunity on the Tongass National Forest that belongs to everyone in the United States to protect these intact watersheds in all their diversity with all their ecological parts. And it's an opportunity that just doesn't exist and it won't exist for very long. And uh, I think everybody should uh, take the opportunity to learn about the Tongass, talk to their uh, congressional representatives and ask for an end to old growth clear cutting on the Tongass National Forest. This makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's one area, one significant difference, I think, between the Tongass and the, the California Redwood Forest is it's a little too late for that here. Um, we're, a lot of people here are occupied in trying to preserve the last old growth trees uh, or even large second growth trees, uh, you know, that they have become, they have outsized value, disproportionate value uh, or perceived value ecologically as well as economically. But the, uh, the ecosystem function of a large stand of old growth is just gone. There's no way to protect that because it doesn't really exist. Certainly in Mendocino County, there are no large contiguous stands of, of old growth left. And uh, even in Humboldt, I think they're, uh, they're, it's pretty patchy. And uh, there's one stand down in Santa Cruz County and that's in a state park. And so that, you know, it, I think the concern here is you don't want to see the Tongass go the way that the redwood forests have already gone. That's right. Tim, you hit the nail on the head. Those forests occur in relic stands, but they're functionally extinct. Yeah. shame. Well, thank you, Dr. Shane. This has been a, a really terrific discussion. Well, thank you, Tim and Bob. Great to chat. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, John. It's uh, great to have you on and uh, good luck with your book and uh, keep fighting a good fight. All right, Bob. Okay. See yeah, you stay, later. In it. stay in it. Uh, okay. Listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, our guest tonight has been Dr. John Shane, and you can find more information about his work, his research, and his book uh, on our website. That is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you got as much out of the interview as we did, and we will see you again uh, next month. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Before we go over to the Philo Studio for Ensemble. I thought I would just take a moment and remind you that we are in our quiet drive, the uh, the quieter alternative to the traditional, rather frenetic sounding pledge drive. And if you're appreciating the low-key approach to fundraising, I hope you uh, either already have or soon will contribute to help shorten this up. We will be having a short flash drive, more like a traditional pledge drive, but shorter because we've done most of the heavy lifting already. We're about halfway to our overall goal for this pledge drive. So if you could just take a moment right now and 
send in a donation uh, to P.O. Box 1, Philo, California, 95466. Or you can go online and click that Donate Now button. Thanks for listening and supporting Community Radio.